If you'd follow in your Bible, I'm going to read from Matthew 25. We come to this chapter now. If we've looked at chapter 24 for several weeks, I won't be dealing with everything in chapter 25, but we want to deal with this first parable, and then next week I hope to look at the concluding portion, which really is, you could say, perhaps one of the more grim scenes of the entire gospel as Jesus speaks of final judgment. And we'll look at that on Communion Sunday next week. But today, the first 13 verses of chapter 25, and I'd ask you to listen carefully. Listen with not just your physical ears, but with your heart and your mind as you receive God's Word. Jesus is the one speaking. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. And the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. And this is God's Word. Whenever I enter the church building, usually on a Saturday, for the purpose of presiding at a wedding ceremony, there are many things on my mind. I'm happy that I don't bear the ultimate concern for all of them. You see, there are all kinds of details that have to come together for a wedding to proceed. Planning's been going on for months, and many people are responsible to do things besides myself. Happily, I have a wedding coordinator from the church who's well-trained, doing many things. We have a wonderful music director who's extremely responsible. So I have kind of a short mental checklist for just a certain few things that I must check on before I know the ceremony can start. At minimum, that checklist includes are the bride and the groom both in the building. And when I've ascertained that, the second is have I already seen a valid license for the wedding from the county clerk's office? And maybe third in importance would be, are the wedding rings present and accounted for and, and in the right hands? And really, when I've realized those things are okay, I'm saying in my mind, this wedding's going to happen. There are many things that can go wrong, you know. The corsages might uh, 
be delivered wrong. The flowers don't get here on time. The soloist has laryngitis. The three-year-old ring bearers throwing a tantrum. None of that actually will keep the wedding from proceeding. We have many delightful wedding customs and things that we want to do surrounding a wedding. But when it comes down to it, the core of a wedding are those solemn vows that the marriage ceremony contains, and I guess you'd say that's my job to make sure those happen, and almost everything else is really dispensable if it has to be at the last minute. Well, it's delightful to see how wedding customs and wedding practices keep occurring in the ministry of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. You remember that his first miracle was done at Cana of Galilee. John's Gospel tells about it in John 2, and he, more or less at the direction of his mother Mary, replenished miraculously, we're told, the wine that had run out at a wedding. Then in Matthew 22, not so many weeks ago, we investigated a story there about a wedding banquet of a king's son. It was a parable, not, a, not an actual account that Jesus attended, but a parable he told about a king. And remember, the invited guests all refused to come, representing the unbelief of Israel And then the king sent out and got people from the streets to come in. But then that strange epilogue that here was in the midst of it, one man from the streets who oddly seemed to refuse to wear a wedding robe that he would have been offered as he came in the door. He wanted to come there in in his own attire and, and be accepted for himself rather than for what we believe symbolizes there the righteousness of Christ as a gift on him. Well, now we come to Matthew 25, to another memorable parable, which is about wedding customs, and it draws from the way a wedding was conducted in those times with these bridesmaids who are waiting to go along and escort the groom and his men to take the bride through the streets to the wedding banquet, and they're waiting for the groom to come. The theme of Matthew 25 is directly out of 24. There's no break or subject interruption between these two chapters. We're still looking at the applications that Jesus gives to this hoped-for grand event of his final coming. And chapter 24 ended with notes telling us to, to watch and be ready because we did not know or will not know the day and the hour that he would come and that even he, the Son, at least in his humanity, could not tell us that day or hour. And that note of watchfulness is carried out here. As we just think back for a moment on everything that 24 has had to say, I can't possibly recap it in a minute or so, but we had these manyfold prophecies which are of some events near and other events farther away in which Jesus said there would be international disruptions. I I thought of this chapter last night as I was driving home around 10 o'clock from an event, and and the lightning was flashing across the sky. It made me think of what Christ said about his coming being seen as the lightning is seen from one part of the earth to the other. And then those troubles and persecutions that are going to go on for a long time, the event of the fall of Jerusalem, which was a short-term event, which did happen, But then we saw, too, that longer-term event of the Son of Man appearing in the sky in 2430, and we know that hasn't come about yet. 
but it will at some unknown hour, and he will come both to welcome and gather his people in blessing, but also to judge those who are not ready for him. Well, this parable of the ten bridesmaids does restate the importance of watching for Christ's imminent appearing. Many might read it as, as that's all it's about, perhaps, just a saying in a different way what the end of 24 has said. But I see another element here, and I want to probably major on that other element that's in this parable, implicit in it. Because before this, the final separation of judgment that is going to come at the appearing of Christ has primarily been about pure unbelief versus belief. Or you might say, you know, the the Christian versus the absolute non-Christian. But there's a subtlety and a very important note that's introduced in this parable of the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids that is a little bit different because here we have ten young women who all display the outward status, at least at first, of being what we would call believers, people who are waiting for this expected one, in this case the the bridegroom, and and that fits, as you know, other imagery of Jesus where he's called the, the bridegroom and we the church are his bride. Here are people who outwardly, you would say, are all believers. And yet what we find happening is that half of them are expelled from being greeted and welcomed by the bridegroom in the end. So here's an emphasis that tells us there's the possibility of a kind of artificial posing alongside people of saving faith that will not do you any good. And that there are those in the organized church or in any body where you say, well, here are the Christians, here's that holy Catholic church, we confess that universal church on earth. And there are actually within that people who actually do not belong to Christ despite outer identifying marks, then they will be exposed and excluded from the eternal blessing of Christ. That's a very solemn and new note that that hasn't really been there up until now. Christ the judge, we're told here, will not recognize any among those who have some words of faith on their lips who have shut themselves out of his banquet by deliberately lacking true repentance and a true allegiance to his lordship that is a living, true, transforming thing in their heart of hearts. The first thing I want to show you as we open up this text of Matthew 25 is to notice this. I say here that Jesus left the door open The hints are broad, but they're strong. He left the door open for his return to happen much later instead of sooner. Now, before I address that directly, let's just take a moment to sketch what we know about the wedding custom that's being described here. And the interesting thing is the New Testament tells about these things without really explaining them. But from what Bible scholars reconstruct, we know that A Jewish wedding of that time in history was conducted very differently from any weddings of today, whether Jewish or Gentile. The 
principal thing that was very different is that the engagement was the real, formal, legal contract. A man and woman came together, their parents got involved, and a contract was actually drawn up and signed and witnessed. And an engagement period began, usually the major part of a year, in which they were contractually betrothed. And yet during that time, they did not live together. They were not married in the full sense. They did not live physically as husband and wife. And you might recall that it was during this time that Jesus, of course, was born with Mary as his mother, but Joseph not being his natural father, but Mary's legally betrothed, who could have actually divorced her. The betrothal was so strong that the only way it was broken was by the formal recognition of a broken contract. Well, with that emphasis on that first part of the, of the contract, the wedding itself, the time when the man and woman came together as husband and wife, wasn't really another legal ceremony. It was basically, in our words, a party. At the end of the betrothal period, the bride and groom, by arrangement and by plan, came together at a wonderful feast, a banquet. Normally, here's another difference, the groom's family, apparently, as we can put reconstruct, were the ones who put this on. Somehow we've switched it all over to be the bride's family's responsibility. But the groom's family usually held a big feast at their home or some other place, and it was, a, it was a grand thing. Depending on your wealth and your ability, we had records of these going on for days. And the guests who came were given lavish gifts as they brought gifts and had all the best food, as you can imagine. On a prearranged day, this happened. So what we have as we look at this text is the moving into that feast. The contractual betrothal has, has now reached its end point. The day has come. And the groom's men are going to be coming through the street, escorting the groom to the house of the bride where she is with her attendants waiting for him to come. And they'll join forces, go through the street in a, what apparently was a custom of singing and shouting and maybe tambourines, you know, and everybody had a torch or a lamp. It was customary to do this in the evening. And they would arrive with great rejoicing, of course, and the whole village would know that the, the wedding feast was, was about to be entered into as the entire wedding party made this procession, just as today we have the decorated cars and the honking horns. You can think of the same thing just about as these women were waiting for the, the groom and his party to arrive. Evidently, there was a little bit of gamesmanship that got into this. Uh, the idea being, all right, this is the day or the evening when it's going to happen, but there was a little bit of fun in, can I catch you by surprise when I arrive? You know, you might be expecting me at five, so I'll come at four, or I'll come at seven, or whatever. And you sense that's in the background here. They're waiting, they're prepared, they know the groom is coming. He doesn't come right away evidently wanting to catch them by surprise. This can't help but remind me of a personal experience at the wedding of one of my children. You would think, knowing me to be a disciplined and punctual Presbyterian, that I couldn't possibly have anyone come into my family who would pull a trick like this, but the groom in question at this wedding deliberately arrived at his wedding three minutes 
before the ceremony was to start. And I was the pastor. And I was the father of someone in this ceremony. I'm going to let this stay as neutrally identification as I can. And my toe was tapping, and my anxiety was deep. Where was this groom? And he finally came through the door with his best man, smiling. All was well as far as he was concerned. He intended to arrive three minutes before, and we'll let that person remain unnamed. You can ask around my family. You'll find out. You know, part of Matthew 24 sounded a note of immediacy about things that were going to happen quickly. And portions of the events that Jesus predicted in Matthew 24 did happen rather soon, at least within a generation, not within minutes or hours, but within years of the time that he spoke in the lifetime of his disciples. And some would say, well, because he led that, he put in that sense of immediacy, then everything that he predicted should have happened immediately. And and therefore, the the idea was was widely abroad, and, and many Christians did seem to have this idea that his coming would surely be in the time of the apostles, in the time of the early church. And he allowed them to have that notion, to have that sense of immediacy. And we do know, of course, that one, of, one great event happened, and we've already talked about the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And so some people look at the whole thing and say, well, all right, yeah, he, he led us to be on the edge of our seats, and he brought us one of the great events that he predicted, isn't it kind of a, a, a goof-up in the schedule or something, a, a delay from God that wasn't anticipated that here we are after 2,000 years, believers in Christ, still expecting his coming on the clouds in glory, and we haven't seen it? Did Jesus prepare us for this kind of long waiting, or did he really mean for us to think he would come sooner? Well, I would contend this to you that I think is not often noticed, and our passage and, and things on either side of it actually do contain hints that he left the door open. He gave us heavy hints here that his final glorious return would happen later instead of sooner. Let me show you why I say that. In chapter 24, 48, go back a second. I didn't specifically preach on this last little parable of servants who find their master away and uh, you know, act badly in his absence. But if you look in verse 48 of the preceding chapter, you see there the mention that their master stayed away a long time. How long? Was it years? We don't know. But, but the emphasis is certainly that it wasn't just a few days that caused them to become negligent and go off and do things their own way. And then if you'd look ahead of where we are now and into the parable I'm not going to specifically deal with. It's very similar to the one we're dealing with, with a somewhat different emphasis. The parable of the talents that follows here, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 25, once again has people, servants, stewards, given some money to invest while the master of the estate goes away, and they're supposed to do their best with his, you know, means and show him a profit when he returns. And in verse 19, again, it says, the man was away a long time. Now, the third hint of this potentially long time for Christ to finally come is in our parable that we look at today in 25, 1 to 13, that depicts this bridegroom 
waiting so long and so late into the evening that those who were all excited, you know, you can picture these young ladies as they, they're all a Twitter and this is going to be a great party and a nice time. I just interviewed a new member couple the other day who I said, how did you two meet? And it was at the wedding of friends where they were both attendants. And you know how young adults are always excited about being in a wedding. You get to wear your nice fashions and everything else and look your best and it's a nervous time, and here they are all excited, but the, the groom delayed so long that they all fell asleep. Now, we're not to think, I don't believe, that there's anything blameworthy about their falling asleep. They're not being indicted for laziness or sloth or unawareness. In fact, I think the Lord is saying implicitly here that he knows that even his most mature and well-prepared disciples will not maintain a 100% focused, what we like to call in our slang today, 24-7 observance until he comes. We can't possibly do it throughout our lives. You go through whole days, whole weeks, probably whole months when you don't think about the return of Christ. That months is getting a little long, not to think about it, I would say, for a Christian. But let's face it, you don't wake up most mornings and say, Jesus may come today, do you? And most of us don't. We're, we're a little drowsy after all these centuries. And yet, we can be prepared for Christ with lamps of hope burning in us and oil to fuel those lamps by the Spirit of God, even as we go to sleep and go to our jobs and do all the routine things that occupy us physically in this world. Yes, it can seem as if this return of Christ has taken a very long time, and maybe the promise is false, or God has forgotten about it, or something like that. It's certainly a long time since the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But the combination of some hints here, and more than hints, I think, about long-time removals in three places that I've just mentioned in these chapters would tell us that God is not slow in keeping His promise, He's not off schedule after 2,000 years. And that we in 2008 as disciples of Jesus Christ can say any delay involved here is from our perspective only, certainly not a lag or a lapse in God's perfect plan to consummate all things on the day that he knows and that he will bring to pass. Well, secondly, I want to dig into the core meaning of this parable with this statement about it. The statement is this, or the theme is this of this second point, Christ's sudden appearance will expose who is a false disciple and who is true. I might remind you that when we think about these so-called foolish bridesmaids, they were foolish because they brought lamps as they were supposed to. It was going to be a night procession, and I'm sure five of them said, oh, yes, I have to have a lamp. Where's a lamp? Grab one, leave the house. You know, they were more concerned with was their hair fixed and, and did they have their shoes, the right shoes that match the outfit or something. Then, sorry, ladies, that wasn't a dig. I guess it sounded like one. But uh, then they were. You know, was this lamp fueled with enough oil to go hours and hours and hours through the whole evening? So they came carelessly. Well, what do they remind you of? They, they actually do remind you, in a broad and general way at least, of the man in the other wedding parable in chapter 22, verse 11, where that man who came in to the wedding feast and said, I don't need a robe. 
You know, they were giving out beautiful garments. That was the custom of the day. When, when you came in, the, the host, who in this case was a king, had a whole closet ready to put wedding garments on those who came in. This man said, I don't want one. I don't need one. And when the king came in, he said, what's that guy doing there in his ragged street clothes? Why did he refuse this aspect of my hospitality, which we think really represents the gift of the righteousness of Christ that robes a Christian and puts on over his filthy works and rags that are so worthless? Well, there's a similarity at least or in a broad way anyway, between that man and these foolish bridesmaids. And I would say, and many commentators certainly agree, I'm not making this up, that, that these people seem to represent the nominal Christians, the go-along-for-the-ride believers, the in-name-only people. And when the cry goes up, as it does in our story, the bridegroom is here. Wake up. Somebody saw him or heard him, heard the singing of the groomsmen. Let's go meet him. Of course, the first thing was, got to have a lamp. It's midnight. Got to be able to see to get through the streets. And presumably, all their lamps had been lit, you know, as they waited there, wherever they were sitting, waiting. But they'd been sleeping, and the lamps had either completely sputtered out or were ready to go out. And, of course, it says they all trimmed their lamps. Well, five of them were prepared to not just trim it, but fill them. But five were not. Their lamps were out, and they couldn't do anything about it. And they said, hey, how about giving us some? And, and, you know, the comment is often made, well, why weren't the other five generous enough to give them some oil? Well, it's actually explained because it would seem it isn't their lack of generosity that's a point here. The point is that if their lamps were going to be still lit at the end of the procession, they needed what they had brought. And they recognized the idea that, hey, it's not going to make any sense if 10 of us have no lamps halfway through the procession. We need what we brought along. We can't share it. Well, what's the emphasis here? The emphasis would seem to be not on just being ready, but on realizing that that which is going to make us ready is not a commodity that we can buy or borrow or take over from somebody else. There are those who would say the oil in these lamps represents the Holy Spirit. That sounds good because oil in the Bible is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, but I think it has to be more than that. While that touches on it, I, I don't know there's a direct allegory here that we have to say it's one thing or another. But it's certainly this oil is that which represents the whole new life that we have in Jesus Christ. And you either have that new life or you don't have it. You can't borrow it. You might have had some taste of it as you came into the Christian life and made some perhaps childhood decision to say, I accept Jesus as my Savior. And Well, was it or was it not a real transforming, lifelong experience with God through Christ? Only time tells. You see, I as a pastor or any of our pastors or any of you could visit a hospice center and pray with a dying person. You might look at that person in the bed, wasted away on the verge of death and Love that person and say, oh, what I would give, what I would give sometimes. To to say, here I am, healthy, in midlife, and maybe I could give that person 10% of my health 
and they would live. But I can't do that, can I? There's no transfusion device that I know of where they can hook a tube up from me to that dying person and 10% of my life flows in and they sit up and say, great, I'm ready to be healthy again. I can't do that. I can't give my life to them. Similarly, the gift of spiritual life in Jesus Christ isn't something that can be borrowed or transfused from a Christian friend or relative. We have used the cliche in the past and says, say that God has no grandchildren. Every child of his is born themselves by grace through faith. You can't simply say, my Christian mother, my Christian mother. Yes, that Christian mother might have been a wonderful influence in your life and showing you the gospel and praise God if they were, but you're not a Christian because your mother was. And no person can freeload their way to heaven on the back of another person's faith. If you are not what you profess to be as a believer in Christ, there is nobody who will stand in as your proxy and take the final exam for you. In fact, when the final exam comes, the coming of Christ or your death, whichever comes first, you may be irrevocably exposed as a Christian fraud. Some people ask about the numbers in this text, 10 and 5. Do these numbers mean that 50% of all people who pose as believers are actually false? No, I don't think so. But I do know that many are such. How many? Who can say? But in every church, there are people who are still dead in their trespasses and sins while they worship every week. They've gone through the motions. They've said the words. But they don't know the living Christ. And every pastor and every church leader can tell you that a disproportionate number of church problems come from the people who aren't truly recreated in Christ. They show themselves as time goes on as having more churchianity about them than Christianity. In 1 John chapter 2, John diagnosed some folks who went out and did what we would call apostasy, leaving the assembly of the church. And John diagnosed what was happening very well. He said they went out from us because they never really belonged to us. So we come to a third point that's a hard one here, especially seen in verses 10 and 12 today as we close, that when Jesus returns, the time of opportunity, even for nominal Christians, ends, not just for rank unbelievers. And we conclude from this text that the Lord will be actually insulted by those who are in his church without belonging to him as Lord of the church. Maybe you're shocked as I read this to you as these five straggling bridesmaids finally arrive at the feast and they ask to be admitted and you think, well, goodness, they, they did finally get there and this wasn't a big thing. Why in the world couldn't they be forgiven? And the bridegroom calls out and notice he says first, I tell you the truth. That's sort of like a solemn declaration. What I'm about to say is absolutely important. I tell you the truth. I don't know you. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, the Lord knows those who are his. Jesus, the good shepherd, said in John 10, I know my sheep and they know me. I try to know most all of the people in this church and try to know your names, but there are times when I see you in the hall and, oh, you know, are you Gene or Joan? Or I'm just not sure. 
I can forget. Jesus Christ cannot forget any of his own. He knows his own. And if he is being portrayed here in his final coming saying to anyone, I don't know you, that's not a memory lapse. That's a judgment. These foolish bridesmaids were exposed and excluded, not because it was simply inconvenient to open the door for them, but in fact, what you don't perhaps see is that they had given a deep offense to the groom. He was offended by their carelessness and their refusal of opportunities to be prepared for him. Now, maybe you say from this, well, then how can we know? Maybe, maybe I would be the one who would be proved false. And here's one thing. You know, it's not entirely bad that that thought would pass through your mind. Because if it passes through your mind, it will cause you to examine yourself and look at your faith and do what 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? Or is it merely a form or some vague decision from 20 or 40 years ago that you say, oh, you know, they tell me because I raised my hand in Sunday school and said, I take Jesus as my Savior. Now eternity's all set. Well, it also includes where's the growth and where are the fruits and and where's the passion that should be lighting the lamp of your life today if Christ is in you. You should be able to see it now. You should be able to face death differently when it comes into your home. There's a test for you, by the way. You know, Christians show their true belonging in the way they face tragedy and suffering and and grief and shattering death in their homes. They show so often and in so many ways that, yes, they're sorrowful. Yes, they're sad. They're, They're undone when a sadness comes to their house. But it's different. There's oil of the comfort and peace and resurrection hope of God in their lives, and they face it differently. You can see it. Whereas nominal Christian membership just tends to collapse and fall down. True believers who look to the cross and rejoice in Christ's resurrection, you see, have nothing to fear from his midnight appearing. There's no reason for a Christian to be anxious about all these centuries and say, am I going to be exposed as false? Look into your heart. Check your repentance. Check the sincerity of your passion to know Christ and know his word and love his people and long to see his work carried forward. Check on your hope. These things will be tangible to you. Justified by God's grace through faith in Christ, you will find that you'll come to that marriage supper of the Lamb, as it's called, with a place prepared and reserved for you. I think you and I must, lit, must plan for living on earth as if we'd be around here, not just for a year, but a hundred years. Even at age 50, it doesn't hurt to make plans that are hundred years plans. But we should be ready to go to be with Christ in the next hour. History tells of an ancient Jewish rabbi named Eleazar who used to teach his disciples this little bit of wisdom. He said, repent one day before your death. 
And he let that one sink in, and his disciples came to him, as he knew they would, and said, Rabbi, how are we to know when it's one day before our death? And Rabbi Eleazar said, that is the reason to repent today, for you may die tomorrow. Christ knows those who are his. I trust that he's communicating to you the signs of that as you look to him in true faith. Father, teach us to live ready. Though we may slumber, we thank you for the gift of new life that doesn't go to sleep in us, that will stand because Christ has stood in our place and rose for us. Bring that gift alive and let it shine bright for your honor and praise. Amen.